Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. So this morning, our wisdom story is really for all of us here, for the children and adults and families who are here. It's a story from the Hebrew scriptures about two women named Ruth and Naomi. So a long time ago, uh, Naomi and her husband and their two sons lived in the city of Bethlehem in the kingdom of Judah. All was going well for them in their lives until a great famine and drought came and there just wasn't enough food for them. And so they and many others left And Naomi and her family left for another kingdom, uh, Moab. When they arrived, they were strangers. They were foreigners in this new land. And they finally sort of settled in. And after they had settled in, were there a little while. Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons and and their wives, women that they had married from Moab, sort of gather around Naomi and take care of her. She's getting old at this point in time. But then Naomi's sons die, and Naomi is left all alone. With no close male relative and no hope of remarrying, Naomi has really not a good option about surviving in this foreign land. But her daughter-in-law, Ruth, stays with her, takes care of her. When Naomi hears that the famine in Bethlehem is finally over, she decides that she wants to return. And Ruth says to her, I will travel with you. I will go with you. When they are almost into Jerusalem, Naomi thanks Ruth for being loyal and loving, for being a good daughter to her son. And she says, you go back home to Moab. You're a stranger here in my land. You go home. Be with your community. Be with your family. Now, this would have been the easy thing to do, but Ruth does not leave Naomi. Even though she knows no one, even though Ruth knows no one in Bethlehem, she says to Naomi, where you go, I will go, beloved. Your people are my people. Your divine, my divine. So Ruth says that to Naomi, and Naomi can see that Ruth is determined to stay with her. She is refusing to disavow their bonds as family, even though the ties of marriage have dissolved. And so they travel together into Bethlehem, hungry and tired. And to get food in Bethlehem, they end up following behind the men in the fields who are harvesting grain. They pick up the stray pieces of grain that are left behind. The farmer, Boaz, who owns the field, asks his workers, he says, who are these women that are, that are following behind? And they tell him about Naomi's return to Bethlehem and that this other woman is the loving daughter-in-law who came back with Naomi. Boaz, the farmer, the owner, is impressed by the sacrifice and the loving kindness of Ruth, and he tells his workers, he says, leave some extra grain there for these two women so they can, they can eat. 
And after a while of this, Naomi realizes that the farmer is a cousin of her own husband who had died so long ago. And the farmer realizes that Ruth has been married to Naomi's son, one of his own relatives. And what I want to say here is that there is, there's really no indication that this story is literally true, but this is the authors of these scriptures telling us something about human community and family and how that circle of who we imagine as ours and who we take care of is always expanding. So Boaz feels responsible to help, and he asks Ruth to marry him, which will give her some security and a place to live, and she says yes. After they marry, Naomi lives with Boaz and Ruth, and they have a son, and Naomi helps take care of him as a grandmother. And so my wondering this morning, our collective wondering, might be this. When we think about these words from Ruth, when she says, where you go, I will go. Your people are my people. I wonder if those were really words about what it means to be a part of the whole human family to really see one another across difference, across family lines? What if Ruth was showing us that love like this, this unconditional kind of love, is not only possible, but is actually something that is our responsibility here on earth? Perhaps the real work of the Spirit is not only to commit to one other person or one single family, though that can be a lot of work and very difficult, but the real work of the Spirit is to commit our lives to the entire human family. It is good to be here, good to be alive, good to be reminded of the joy in living, of the miracle, of the fact that we're even here at all, and all the sacrifice and chance that went into the simple fact that we are alive. It is good to be here together. Thank you for being able to feel that in our body from the choir and the orchestra. Over the last four weeks when we have gathered together here, we have lived in the land of vision. We have considered who we are and who we want to become and what we want to build together. And it is out of that land of vision and all of that imagining that we come to the month of March and our worship theme of sacrifice. <laughs> yes! <sighs> so I will tell you that we did not put the theme of sacrifice here as the heavy hit of our annual giving drive. So just rest easy that I'm not going straight there this morning, though please do get your annual giving cards in. It helps us. We did choose the theme of sacrifice on purpose, and we did choose to put it here right after the worship theme of vision on purpose. And we did that because we know that if any vision is to really come to life, it is going to take hard work and perseverance and persistence. We also know that if we are going to choose one particular vision, it usually means not choosing another one. And that can feel like a kind of sacrifice too. And you may have noticed that we are committed here in this church to making space and creating a container to have the hard and meaningful conversations that all of us need to, even when our culture tries to push us right past them. So, sacrifice. And what exactly does that have to do with Unitarian Universalism? Well, let me start with an image that I'm going to ask you to hold on to through the course of this sermon. It was a couple of weeks ago now that I went to see Nadia Bowles Weber speak over in St. Paul. 
Nadia is a best-selling author and public speaker. She also happens to be a swearing, tattooed, CrossFit-doing Lutheran pastor, and she is out there on tour right now with a new book titled Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. I, of course, was wishing that I'd gotten to see her and that her book had come out when we were doing our worship theme on bodies, which would have been super helpful, but didn't get that. So Nadia began her talk by wondering out loud about something she had seen during a recent flight over the middle of the country. And this is what she said. She said, the plane took off and I looked out the window. We were traveling over the dry plains of eastern Colorado, 30,000 feet above a dot matrix of green and brown circles that revealed the geometry of industrialized agriculture. As a city girl, she said, who doesn't know anything about farming, I've always found those green circles puzzling. Why would the farmers plant their circles of crops in lots that are square? When I looked into it later, she said, I discovered that in 1940, just 29 miles from the spot where my plane made its way into the crisp Colorado sky, a man named Frank Zyback invented the center pivot irrigation system, essentially revolutionizing farming in America. With this system, the watering equipment turns on a pivot, allowing the sprinklers to water the crops in a circular pattern. The crops aren't planted in circles, they're actually planted in squares, but they're watered in circles, and the water never gets to the crops in the corners. And that's the image she started with. It's the one I want you to hold in your mind as we move through this today. So, universalism. Universalism is based in the belief that all people are whole and holy and worthy and that no one, no one of us, no matter what we have ever done or not done, is outside the circle of God's love. Universalism talks about an expansive, unconditional love where each one of us in all of our glorious and varied expressions of humanity are welcome. Everyone is inside the circle of unconditional love in universalism. Now, these statements were controversial when our church was founded over 160 years ago, and they are still controversial today. When our church was founded, these statements about unconditional love and a circle with no bounds, well, it was a problem for many folks here in America because there was this belief, this larger belief in Christianity that Jesus' death was just for some people. It offered up salvation for a particular few, maybe a predetermined few. Maybe it was a reward for faithful service. Maybe it was just for those who had less dire sins that they had committed. Now, the claims of universalism are challenging for those reasons, but for others too. Asking us how might we actually create a world that reflects the beliefs that we profess. Our country's Declaration of Independence includes the radical claim that all men are created equal. Women, not so much. Anyway, our country's Declaration of Independence includes the radical claim that all men are created equal, but then its laws and institutions say otherwise. Our universalist message says that all are whole and holy and worthy, yet our institutions and practices came into the being in the context of white supremacy when white folks were valued more than people of color and native people. Our universalist message was born in this country and in this culture that values some over others, that extracts resources from the earth and her people with a callous disregard at alarming rates. We universalists, like those who take the founding mandate of our country seriously, 
We have to see that gap and feel that disconnect between our professed beliefs and the lived reality that our history and our present tell us about. This claim that we make that all are whole and holy and worthy and welcome, that no one is outside the circle of love, it is a great claim, but the culture of our congregations and of our country tells us otherwise. I want you to stay with me for a little bit longer through this writing, this quote from the Reverend Dr. James Cone, known as the founder of black theology. He wrote this in 1968. The church has shown many times that it loves life and is not prepared to die for others. It is not really gone where the action is with a willingness to die for the neighbor. You could say, doesn't really have a willingness to sacrifice. Those are my words. You could, back to his words, it is not really gone where the action is with a willingness to die for the neighbor, but remains aloof from the sufferings of the people. It is a ministry to middle-class America. How else can one explain its snail-like pace toward an inclusive membership? The church's community life reflects racism through and through. It is still possible to be a racist, a black hater, and at the same time a member of the church, he writes. It is my contention that the church cannot be the church and sponsor or even tolerate racism. The fact that the church does indeed tolerate or sponsor racism is evidenced by its whiteness. The real church, he says, the real church is operating outside the denominational church, outside the institutional church. The real church is that grouping of people that identifies with the suffering of the poor by becoming one with them. The church includes all who view their humanity as inextricably related to every other person. The real church is that group of people who view their humanity as inextricably related to every other person. This quote from Dr. Cohn is a powerful one and it feels like an indicting one to me too in important ways. And while his words come from a time more than 50 years ago, they still ring powerfully true for us today. This church he talks about that remains aloof from the sufferings of the people, a ministry to middle-class America, a snail-like pace toward inclusive membership, I'd love to be able to tell myself and all of us that we have unwound all this in the last 50 years, that we're done and we've become the real church he dreams about. But I know that we have so far to go. The teachers that I follow tell me that racism and white supremacy will take nine generations to unwind. Nine generations of committed personal and institutional action, nine generations of telling the stories, of learning the history, of learning to settle ourselves and our bodies, of surviving the realities of injustice, of changing the story, putting our resources toward the funding of racial justice in our community and in our church, reimagining what our shared ministry is together. Nine generations honoring the work of those ancestors who have come before us, who have made a way for us to do this work, making room for those who come after us, hoping to build a grouping of people who see their own humanity as inextricably connected to every other person. So back I go to that original image we started with, the image of the green circle of the crops there inside the square with the brown around the edges. Nadia Bowles Weber, that radical Lutheran pastor, 
She's talking in her recent book about the ways that the Christian teachings about sex and the body have harmed people for generations. And there is something there that is useful for us here. So she tells this story in her book about sitting on the edge of the stage down in the social hall. I can kind of imagine her downstairs and arrows with her feet dangling off the edge. And it's the Wednesday night weekly chili potluck that they have in her congregation, the house for all sinners and saints. And she's sitting there on the edge of the stage, kind of avoiding the conversation at the tables. And she's sitting with a member of the church named Megan. And Megan is a larger transgender woman. And they often find themselves sitting there on the stage rather than being in what they consider awkward conversations. And they talk about comic books and Christianity and all kinds of stuff together. And on this particular week, Nadia says to Megan, hey, so this morning I just thought I'd crack open my 40-year-old Christian sex ed book. Guess what I found in there? (laughs) And Nadia says, I read in there this morning, Megan, that, that God's plan for everyone is to be a heterosexual, cisgender Christian who never has sex with anyone until they marry their one true love and make babies. And she and Megan laugh out loud together a lot. And they laugh about this idea of God's plan for everyone to be one particular way. And then Nadia realizes, oh, right, I'm also still the pastor and the Lutheran in the room. And I got to say, like, yeah, well, some people fit in that plan, right? It's okay for some folks. And then Megan holds up her hand, and she touches her thumb to her purple polished fingers. And she says, sure, sure, there are people like that. And this is how small that circle is. So Nadia goes on. If we're to draw a circle that represents all the people on the planet, this big circle, and then inside it we draw another small circle to represent the people who are living according to God's plan of our bodies and sex and sexuality, then, Nadia says, well, very few people on the planet fit into that circle. Megan doesn't fit in that circle. I don't fit in that circle. Also not included in that circle, she says, are divorced people, people in unhappy marriages, people who aren't in a marriage, people who have sex before marriage, people who masturbate, asexuals, gay people, bisexuals, people who are not Christian, people who are gender non-binary. If that is God's plan, Nadia says, then God planned very poorly. (laughs) I have to agree. So back to those circles of the flourishing crops in the center of the square. Humanity exists not just in the center of those circles, but on the margins and on the edges, too. Each one of us just as valuable as the other, each one a part of the plan, each one whole and holy and worthy. Our faith tells us this, even when our culture and our history and the facts of our present do not that circle of acceptability, the circle of people that deserve to have all the things, all the money, all the safety, all the profit, all the power, all the rights and protections of citizenship, that small circle of people. It still largely determines the dominant culture and it creates self-reinforcing laws and ways of being to keep that circle incredibly small. And I don't believe that that circle has anything to do with the kind of God or the kind of love that we claim to want to live into in our universalist faith. This faith we are a part of is not a profit-making enterprise. It's not about the extraction of resources from one group. It's not about believing ourselves better than others. 
Our visionary goals at this church call us to be a racially just church creating a racially just community. Our visionary goals call us to be a multicultural, multiracial, intergenerational community of faith where our sense of who we are, where our sense of that circle is ever expanding. These visionary goals of ours, they invite us to bring all of who we are and to welcome each other with all of what all of us bring in joy. It's not about being profitable or expedient or comfortable together. That is not what church is about. Instead, we are called by a higher cause and a greater purpose to create the community of love and justice we long for, drawing a circle truly that leaves no one outside. That is what we are about, and it will take hard work to get there. So, sacrifice. For us as Unitarian Universalists, sacrifice cannot be about some people being expendable. It can't be about leaving the margins of humanity untended while the circumscribed few survive and thrive. The poet reminded us this morning, our eye, with all of its particular context, our eye of who we are must become part of you and part of we. We have work to do. If we imagine ourselves as seeds planted all over that square, some inside the flourishing circle, some on the margins and struggling, if that whole field is our family, is all of us, we need to make sure the water is getting to the edges, not just the middle. This is the work we are about. So given all of the baggage that the word sacrifice carries, it can be a hard one to take up but I want to encourage you to maybe think about it a little bit differently with me. I've been finding myself reframing the word sacrifice, taking it with the same root as the word sacred, and asking myself and us now, what are our sacred duties? What is our sacred work to be done? Our particular work as a congregation, our particular work as individuals with our unique context and history and resilience, what is our sacred work to do? And I've been trying to settle down and listen to where love is calling me next so that I can answer this question too. Right now, I can say, my sacred duties look like this. My sacred work is to continue to wake up to and wrestle with the reality of racism and the existence of white supremacy within myself and my country and my communities and to do my part in learning and challenging and creating new ways of being in myself and in the communities I'm a part of. My sacred work is to build a church with you that takes seriously the call of universalism to include all people. My sacred work is to do as little harm as possible to the earth and to others as I continue to heal from the generational impact of trauma in my life. My sacred work is to provide safety and the opportunity to grow for myself and my family and to allow myself to be challenged by the other truth, the truth that says there are no other people's children, there is no other family. We are all family. These are a few of the sacred duties, the sacred work I am hearing called out in myself. These are the things I'm willing and working to align my life toward, setting aside other visions to follow and live into these. So I ask, 
What is your sacred work? Given your particular eye, your own unique context and history and resilience and experiences and skills, what is the work that is yours to do? What vision are you willing to set aside so that you can follow the truest speakings of your heart, giving your attention and care and creativity and devotion? What if we were to reframe and redefine sacrifice so it doesn't mean forcing some to suffer for the imagined good of another? What if we were to act as if no one was expendable, that we were all inextricably bound up together? What would sacrifice and sacred work look like then? These are the questions I invite us to live into in this monthly theme of sacrifice. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.